Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Happy Father's Day. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, open it to Daniel chapter 8 is where we left off a couple weeks ago before Robert's excellent message on 2 Corinthians chapter 4 last week. Um, I listened to it yesterday and was so encouraged. And uh, just if you missed it, I, I really highly recommend that you go to the website and find it. I think maybe there's some copies in a CD form on the information desk for you to listen to that. As you're finding Daniel chapter 8, if you're not used to looking up books in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. It's at the beginning of the prophets. So I think you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the rack in front of you. Keep that Bible if you don't own one. That's our gift to you. We've been working our way through the book of Daniel this summer, this spring and summer. We're going to just take it chapter by chapter. You may have noticed that at the beginning I said that we were going to handle the second half of the book maybe in a kind of a group of several chapters, but upon further inspection, we thought it might be better for us to just go through these last few difficult chapters of Daniel just one by one. So we're going to be in Daniel through the end of July and then pick up in a New Testament book after that. As you're finding Daniel... Uh, I want to just mention very briefly, and we're going to report on it much in, in a much longer way in July at our member meeting in, uh, in the evening in July 10th, but what a joy it was to be in Uganda with our team, and uh, you would be so encouraged. There is Will and I with uh, Pastor Raphael and his wife, uh, Alan uh, Kajubi, and they are uh, natives there of, of Uganda and have planted this church in a very, very poor suburb of Kampala, and he's Springer bought, him, Springer bought that Georgia shirt for him and made us uh, bring it to Raphael and sport it there for all of you Georgia fans. For those of you that are not fans of Georgia, I'm sorry. It's just something we kind of had to do, but, um, but I cannot tell you what, what wonderful ministry is going on there in this uh, little poor suburb Pastor Raphael, about seven years ago, planted this church, King Jesus Church, and it is right in the middle of an area where uh, the false prosperity gospel is very prevalent. In fact, that's one of the number one exports, unfortunately, of America is the garbage that is preached on many Christian television stations that is kind of a name it and claim it and prosperity gospel, which is false, and Raphael is trying to combat that false teaching. And then another great challenge that they have is that the city that they're in is, um, is really being uh, influenced greatly by Islam, and there is a huge uh, mosque there in Kampala. In fact, it's the largest mosque in sub-Saharan Africa. Gaddafi from Egypt funded the building of this mosque and many schools, and so there are many challenges to the gospel there in Busega, right outside of Kampala. But this dear brother and his wife are doing a wonderful work. The church has grown since the last time uh, I was there last summer. And also they have started a school for deaf children. And uh, our young people from our youth group there were ministering, doing a VBS. And it was so encouraging to see more students, about almost 20 children now, uh, most of them deaf or have some severe disability, that in the Ugandan society otherwise would be just castaways and, and have, have uh, no value in society. This church and this couple are caring for these children, and it is such an encouragement. I was able to do a pastor's conference uh, for about 50 Ugandan pastors uh, that I met last year when I was there and did a one-day conference. This year, we did two days and it was just a very, very fruitful time, and I was so encouraged. And, and Will and I, along with Springer and our team, just want to thank you for your investment, allowing us as a church to send teams and to pour into these, to these places where we are becoming just, just close-knit partners in the gospel. And Lord willing, we will return next year. I hope that a vast majority of the people that are part of Crosspoint Church over the years will get to visit 
uh, our missions partners like in Uganda and in Nasik, India. What, what a joy to, to be connected with these dear brothers and sisters. And to think, I, I was a little bit overwhelmed with this as we were worshiping and I was just thinking about. In a minute, we're going to open up God's word that through his Holy Spirit, he inspired men through the ages to write. And it's his word. God, the creator of the universe, has communicated with us. And by his Holy Spirit, he makes it alive to us. And we're going to open up his book, and we're going to wrestle with it and think about how it applies to us. We don't have a show to put on. We're not trying to perform or do anything. We just want to meet with God and his word today. And then we're doing this with thousands and thousands and thousands of other Christians around the world, in our city and across the world, that are doing the very same thing, not for some production value or because this is just what religious people do, but because the creator of the universe has revealed himself to a fallen world and is superintending human history for the glory of his name and for the salvation of those whom he has set his affection on in eternity past, all for the glory of his name. And we are here marching towards that sure and final end on a Sunday in summertime in Georgia on Father's Day. That's amazing. That's amazing. So let's, let's do it. Let's, let's get into it and let's, 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 let's hear from God this morning. And um, my prayer is that as we read through Daniel 8, that God would meet us and that we would be encouraged and that beautiful and wonderful things would happen in this room this morning. Now, um, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 8 in just a second. And then we're going to conclude with just three applications from this chapter. If you are here for the first time uh, this morning, you're jumping into the middle of a very difficult book to understand. And what's going on, and let me just get, orient you to catch you up if you're newer or maybe you've forgotten. Daniel is a prophet, a leader, a, a young man who was an Israelite, part of God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And God had established this nation to be a picture, a display of his grace to the other nations. And this was always God's plan, to form a people, not because he loved this people more than all of the other peoples of the earth just for their sake, but so that through these people, he might display his marvelous grace to an onlooking world. And that's exactly what he's doing with us. He forms his church in Christ so that through us, we might be a display to an onlooking world. Well, the story of Israel in the Old Testament is really a long story of their constant rebellion and shortcoming, but his long-suffering and grace towards them. And at this particular stage in the story, God's people, because of their own rebellion, find themselves in captivity. God told them that if they continued to disobey him, he would give them over to his to their enemies, and he did just that. And they were conquered by the Babylonians. And that's the beginning of the book of Daniel. It's the story of Daniel and his friends and many from the nation of Israel in Babylonian captivity. Well, God raises up another kingdom, the Medo-Persians, to come and conquer the Babylonians and to wrestle the Israelites away from them, but they're still captive. They're still exiles living in a foreign land. And the dream or the vision that we read about two weeks ago in Daniel 7 was God giving Daniel a vision of these successive kingdoms that will come. First being Babylon, then being the Medo-Persians, the second kingdom, then the third kingdom of Greece that would come and conquer the Medo-Persians and be in control of God's people, and then the fourth kingdom, Rome, that would come and would ultimately be the world leader, and would dominate God's people. And the vision that we read about two weeks ago was this successive kingdom after kingdom that would come. And the point that God was making to Daniel and his people is is that kingdoms will come and kingdoms will go, but God will preserve his people as they live in exile, and he will not abandon them. And the focus of Daniel chapter 7, which we read two weeks ago, was on this fourth and final horrible uh, kingdom of Rome, this empire of Rome. In Daniel chapter 8, which we're going to read in just a moment, 
Daniel receives this vision from God where he backs up a little bit and zeroes in on that second and third kingdom, the rule of the Medo-Persians, and then ultimately Greece. And this vision that we're going to read about today would have been something that many of the hearers of Daniel's vision and and readers of his vision and this book in just the few decades after it would have faced. So it is as if God is preparing his people for dark days. You remember, um, well, you don't remember. I don't think many of you were alive. And if you were alive, you were just babies. But during World War II... Uh, the, the British Ministry of Information Office came up with a, a wonderful slogan. And, of course, America has just made like a, a marketing slogan out of it. As the Germans were beginning to mount their forces on the European continent, and it seemed like maybe doom was certain, and German planes were bombing London, the Ministry of Information came up with this wonderful phrase that was plastered over all of England. We now use it for, to sell tacos, but it said, keep calm and carry on, right? We have shirts now, keep calm and drink Coke, or keep calm and eat burritos, right? But it was meaning to, to buoy the British people that dark days are ahead, but it's going to be okay. And that's the message, I think, of Daniel chapter 8. So let's read, and we will work our way through it. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after, which, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at, Uli, at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Okay, so we have a ram with two horns, one's higher than the other. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And we're going to read in just a second when we get to the end of the chapter that this ram is picturing or personifying the Medo-Persian Empire. Right, And the angel is going to tell Daniel all of that in just a second. But just to orient us to what's going on here, there's this ram that pictures this Medo-Persian empire that is actually uh, in control of God's people at this moment. Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat, so another animal, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground like a hovercraft goat here, just moving so fast. He's just zipping along the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And we're going to read at the end of the chapter, but just to give us a little bit ahead so we don't wonder what it is. This goat represents the Greek empire that will come and conquer the Medo-Persians, okay? So let's remember where we are. God's people, this little nation of Israel, has been conquered by Babylon, Then the Medo-Persians come along and conquer the Babylonians, and they get all of the Babylonian stuff, and part of what they got was this captive nation Israel. So now Israel is transferred over to Medo-Persian captivity. And then the Greek empire comes and conquers the Medo-Persians, and now the Israelites are transferred to the control of the Greeks. And then we read about last week about the Romans eventually come and conquer the Greeks, and then the Israelites are just transferred from captor to captor, and here we are in this, this transition between the Medo-Persian and the Greek empire. Verse 6, he came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. So the goat and the ram are going at it. It's this war between the Greeks and the Medo and the Persians. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. We're going to explain or we're going to 
have that explained to us here in just a moment. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Verse 14 says, And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, let's pause there. In just a moment, an angel, Gabriel, is going to arrive on the scene and is going to explain the dream or the vision to Daniel. But before we read what Gabriel has to say, let's just catch our breath and take in the scene. Okay? So Daniel has this vision, and there is this ram. And this ram has two horns. One is a little higher than the other. We're going to read that that represents kind of the Medo-Persian, this mixed empire where one aspect of the empire was greater than the other, the Persians. And this ram gets attacked by this goat. And the goat smashes the ram. We're going to read about in a second that that goat represents the Greek empire. And there is this one horn, this conspicuous leader of the Greek empire that is particularly powerful and great. And we know that to be, in history, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquers much of the known world in just about 12 years. So that's with great speed. So when it said there that the ram was like hovering over the face of the earth, the point is that he's moving at great speed. You have this ruler who is conquering all of the known world at the time in, in just incredible Speed, and that's Alexander the Great. Well, Alexander the Great dies at 33 of like the flu or typhoid fever, I think it is. And he didn't have a son that could take control of his empire. And so, four of his kings this is history four of his kings assume power of the Greek empire at that time. And that's these four horns. And one of those four, which we're going to read or think about in a second, Antiochus IV, assumes kind of the the rulership of the whole Greek kingdom. And he becomes an incredible persecutor of God's people. He is this arrogant king who raises up and, and harasses God's people. And then we have this conversation between these holy ones about how long will this happen? And you notice there on verse 14 it says that this, that this trampling underfoot of God's people by this one terrible horn is going to last for 2,300 evenings and mornings. What does that mean? It means that the sacrifices in the temple would have been in the morning and the evening and so... I don't have time to explain this very fully. I don't think it's, it's that beneficial for us to know all that much about it right now. But basically, that is equating to half of that amount of days. There would have been a sacrifice in the morning and a sacrifice in the evening. So if you add up 2,300 sacrifices, that would have been half of that number since it's basically two sacrifices per day. So half of that, those days, which is about three years, is the time that this great horn leader is going to trample God's people underfoot. Which, historically, is exactly about the time that this leader that we're going to read about in a second and think about trampled God's people. This Antiochus, this Greek ruler, about 300 B.C., persecuted God's people. So this is happening 200 years before God, through this vision, is telling Daniel what's going to happen, and it happens. In fact, just a little tidbit, Daniel chapter 8 is one of the most disputed chapters in the Bible for liberal scholars because it proved to be so historically accurate. And liberal scholars at the turn of the century in the late 1800s and early 1900s 
who refused to believe in the supernatural nature of Scripture thought that there's no way that Daniel could have predicted these things that actually came to pass 200 years later. And so they looked at Daniel chapter 8 and they said, Ah, well, Daniel chapter 8 was not written by Daniel during his time. It had to clearly be written by somebody after the time and then attributed to Daniel because it is so spot on to what actually happened 200 years after it predicted it. Well, that's the worldview of people that don't believe in the supernatural inspiration of Scripture, right? Uh, Just a little tidbit there. Okay, so then let's read Gabriel's interpretation to... uh, to Daniel. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. A little bit different than the picture we have of angels in that CBS special back in the 90s, Touched by an Angel. Remember that? (laughs) I mean, every time an angel shows up in the Bible, the people are falling out, scattering. I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the visions that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. I think that's just sort of Hebrew poetry for it was so overwhelming that I fainted. And Gabriel kind of like, okay, get up. And it's kind of interesting. I was reading uh, a commentator who said that he thinks this is proof that, that angels actually can learn things because Gabriel actually becomes the birth announcer of Jesus, of John the Baptist and Jesus in the New Testament. And the first thing that Gabriel says, the same angel, the first thing he says when he appears to Mary is, don't be afraid. <laughs> so like, it's like he's remembering, like, man, last time I showed up and had some news for a human being, they fainted. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's going to be okay. Verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And when we as modern-day Americans read that, resist the temptation to immediately think that when it says the end, that it's talking about our end or the end of our days. This was written to a people in a situation That God was telling them, this is what's going to happen here in the centuries to come. And so, before we fast forward to, you know, wondering whether or not a presidential candidate is the Antichrist, let's take this at face value for what it meant to God's people in that moment. And so, I think that the end that Gabriel is talking about is the end end of this Greek ruler Antiochus and how it will end for him and how God will be faithful to his people. Verse 20, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander the Great. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And let's just pause there. We touched on it before, but this is exactly what happens. So this is happening. This vision that Daniel gets is in the mid-500s B.C. Alexander the Great comes on the scene as the ruler of Greece about 200 years later in in the mid-300s B.C. And he becomes this great king who conquers all of the known world at the time. He, and this is just amazing, for about 12 years, from the ages of 20, 21 to 33, I mean, he, he conquers the vast majority of the world at the time in just 12 years. And as powerful as this man is, God snuffs out his life with a little bug, a little typhoid fever. Boom. He's gone. And then these four kings raise up, and one of them becomes this great antagonistic king. So let's keep reading. Verse 23. 
And at the later end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Okay, let's pause there. Who's this? Okay, so remember Alexander, this great Greek king, has died. And he didn't have a son who could take over his throne. This is, a, this is historical fact. And instead of giving it to his sons, four of his generals from four different kingdoms of the Greek empire at the time raise up. One of them is this gentleman, this man, this, this horrible leader named Antiochus IV, who we talked about a little bit two weeks ago. He rises up to power and becomes this king of bold face. And his power is great. And he is a wicked despot, a tyrannical ruler who tramples on God's people and does horrible things. And it says there in verse 24 that he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. Now, back in Daniel's vision, back in, at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 12, it says that of this little horn that raises up, he shall throw truth to the ground and he shall offer transgression there in this holy place. And Antiochus IV is this Greek ruler who is horribly, horribly treats God's people. In fact, what he does in Jerusalem is he sacrifices pigs on the altar in the temple of God's people in Jerusalem just to mock God's people, knowing that that was an unclean food for them. He would mock them by sacrificing pigs at the altar there in the temple in Jerusalem. He would set up and, and, and worship Zeus in this altar, and he would prevent the Hebrew captives, the young men, from being circumcised. In other words, he is cutting straight at their ability to worship God, mocking God, one of the worst times that God's people have ever had. And this this tyrannical leader, Antiochus, is this little horn. But notice what it says in verse 23. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. So, if it wasn't by his own power, whose power was it by? God's. So, even in the midst, take this in. Even in the midst of one of the worst times that God's people have ever endured, God, 200 years before that, is telling them this is going to happen And it's all going to happen just by one little half sentence. He embeds it in Daniel's vision saying, it's all going to happen, but it's not because of the worldly power of a man. It's by another power, and ultimately that power is me. In other words, a sovereign God is superintending even the darkest days that he is allowing his people to go through. And that would have been a great encouragement for God's people as they read this when they were enduring the reign of Antiochus. Verse 25, it says, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. In fact, Antiochus, he named himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest, right? I mean, he had... uh, no self-esteem problems, right? We have, a little, um, we have a little dry erase marker on our refrigerator where you can write uh, you know, what you want mom to buy from the grocery store that week. Not usually the most nutritious stuff makes it on that list. But I came home from Uganda, and on that list on Monday, there wasn't a request for something from the grocery store. There was just the simple statement made by my youngest child, eight-year-old Abe. He just needed to declare to the world, Abe is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And we see Antiochus just running amok with that little 
self-absorbed pride that exists within each one of us. And he entitled himself, basically he changed his name and said, I'm Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest hubris. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall, in fact, he killed 40,000 Jews over just a period of a few years. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall, I think that's speaking of Jesus. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Probably the most important sentence in all of Daniel chapter 8. He's going to do all this stuff, but he's going to get broken, not by the might of a Jewish army, but by no human hand. In other words, God is going to say it's over and it's done for him. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Verse 27 is so informative. And I, Daniel was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose up and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Just take in verse 27. Daniel gets this picture of this horrible dark day that is going to approach his people 200 years from now. And what does he do? He gets up for work that morning and goes to work for the pagan king that he is serving. In other words, he kept calm and he carried on. He just went to work, cinched up his boots, and went to work. Keep calm and carry on. Okay, so three truths that we're going to end on and apply to our life from Daniel chapter 8. A mysterious, incredible vision. Remember what's happening here. In Daniel chapter 7... God gave Daniel a vision of these four kingdoms, Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, which will come. And God is giving this overarching picture of his sovereignty over the kingdoms of this earth. And in Daniel chapter 8, he backs up and zeroes in on this Greek empire that will come and will particularly harass God's people. And he tells him that there's this Antiochus that's going to come. And he's going he's to do great harm to God's people. And then this is meant to give strength and encouragement and endurance. And basically, God is telling his people, let's take this in. This is, this is so contrary to much of the American gospel. It's not accept Jesus and everything is going to turn out okay for you. He's basically telling him, them, it's going to get harder. It's going to get harder. Before the sun comes up, it's going to get darker. And so what is the message for God's people and what is the message for us as we read this thousands of years later? First thing that I want us to see is that God is always at work in unseen ways. God is always at work in unseen ways. One of the incredible things about God raising up the Greek empire and allowing this man, Alexander the Great, and then Antiochus, these two egomaniacal despots who were horrible leaders, who, 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 who trampled God's people under their feet, is that one of the things that they did was that they did what's called, they Hellenized the known world at that time. Helen meaning they, they, they taught the known world at that time the Greek language. So where everybody was kind of scattered in their own languages, God used the evil of Alexander the Great and Antiochus to bring a uniformity to the language of the known world at that time. And what does that end up doing? That then becomes the language that the New Testament is written in and that fuels the expanse of the gospel just 200 years later when the Romans are in charge. God is always doing redemptive things for his glory underneath the surface and behind the scenes that we can never fully understand in the moment. God is like using Antiochus and Alexander as a pawn in his chess game to set the world up for the expansion of the writing of the New Testament so that the world would be able to read it and understand it. God is using this great evil to bring about a great good. 
And if God can do that with empires, can't he do that with our little lives as well? So right now, just, just think. Just, just think about the, the stress that you may be under in some situation in your life and realize and see this truth that God is at work in unseen ways to bring about his good, your good and his glory. There was an English hymn writer in the late 1700s. He was a friend of John Newton. John Newton, the famous hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, had a miraculous conversion. He was a slave trader, a ship captain, and he would transport slaves from Africa to England, and a wicked man. And God miraculously converted him, and he became a pastor and a writer and a hymn writer. And one of his dear friends was a man named William Cooper. It's spelled Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R. But William Cooper was a dear friend of John Newton's and was himself a hymn writer. And he was mentally unstable. In fact, Cooper was mentally ill and lived with John Newton for about 15 years because he was just unable uh, to live on his own. But William Cooper wrote one of the more famous songs and poems in the English language called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen, I've read it before, but listen to this and think about how God is always at work in the history of the universe, in the redemption of his people, and even in our very own lives in ways that that sometimes go far beyond our ability to see. In fact, not just sometimes, all the time. Listen to what Cooper wrote. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Now, that may not happen in our lifetime. Martin Luther puts it this way. He says that the arc of human history is long, but it always bends towards justice. In other words, we can't read this poem, and we can't read Daniel chapter 8, where Antiochus gets crushed by no human hand and say, then God is obligated to work everything out for me in these 80 years. No, maybe the way that God is working out things for our good and his glory is he is causing some of us to live a very difficult life in these 80 years so that we wouldn't be rescued from it here and now, but so that we would testify to the surpassing worth of Christ and the life to come. But God is always at work in unseen ways. Truth number two that we need to apply to our lives from Daniel chapter 8 is that sanctification is a long-term project. So Daniel knew the prophecy of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, said, he, basically what's happening to God's people is exactly what God said would happen to them. He said that for 70 years they would be in Babylonian captivity, and that's exactly what happened. They're in Babylonian captivity. And Daniel's getting to the end of these 70 years. And he may be thinking, God, is it up yet? Is, it, is your, your time of sanctifying us, your time of punishing us as a people, is it, is it over yet? And God gives Daniel this vision where he basically tells him that before it gets brighter, it's going to get darker. And it, it's just, it, it just rings across the pages to me like God has his timing in our lives. 
And one of the postures of Christian maturity is to hunker down and trust God that He who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But we are dreadfully ill-equipped as Americans to have any endurance, aren't we? Come on. I mean, we just get so, we get so frustrated when stuff doesn't work, right? I, I, listen, if that TV starts to skip a little bit at the end of the U.S. Open on Father's Day and somebody's tied for the lead in the last hole, or if tonight and it's close in the fourth quarter and Steph Curry's having a good game and LeBron's having a good game, and that TV dish, that storm hits, and that, it starts to skip a little bit. <laughs> right? And whoa. Woe to the kid working at Chick-fil-A that forgets to give me the adequate number of Chick-fil-A sauces when I ask for three and I only get two. I mean, woe to the international airline that gets me late to my... We are flying in a metal tube across the world (laughs) in the matter of hours. And yet we will get frustrated because things are jacked up. (laughs) Think about how ridiculous we are. And we bring all of that impatience to God. And that impatience dominates our church culture. And that impatience dominates the way we look at the scripture. And it forces us to create a God of our own making who is obligated to work everything out according to our timeline. And that type of boxed up false God is the type of God that is peddled often because it grows churches and it tells people that they want what they want to hear and it tickles our ears. But this is the message of Daniel 8. It's been horrible. It's gonna get worse. Happy Father's Day. Go enjoy uh, the buffet at Ryan's Steakhouse. (laughs) Sanctification is a long-term project. Oh, God, give us endurance. Like, make us patient people. Don't make us anxious, impatient, nervous Americans who want everything now. I mean, in fact, come on, I don't mean to... I don't mean to kick the guy because I think he's just, he gets kicked all the time, but he needs to be kicked because his message is false. But the, 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 this guy that wrote that book, Joel Steen, he, he wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. And it's the number one selling religious book in America. Friends, that is an indication of how unbiblical our culture is. <laughs> Preach Preach that message to the saints in Hebrews 11 who got sawed in half. Preach that message to the deaf kids in Busega, Uganda, who struggle day after day just to get by. God, you're obligated to make everything good for me because Doggone it, God, I'm a middle-class American, and I grew up in a Bible Belt. And I shop at Lifeway, and I've got a promise book that tells me that if I pray this, you need to do this. And oh, by the way, I like Spurgeon. So now, God, you need to do things according. Friends, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And we have lied to ourselves in American church culture, haven't we? Sanctification is a long-term process, and sometimes we die, and sometimes life is hard, and sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. But then we get to the most important truth, and it's the third one that we need to apply, and it is this. It is that God's triumph, God's victory, is certain. 
Look again at verse 25. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, speaking of this Antiochus. And in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. It's going to get darker. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And then with just half of a sentence, God says, but when I've had enough, I pull the curtain and it's done. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. We see that God with half of a sentence says, when I'm done with this arrogant king, I'm done with him, and he is over. And where do we see God's triumph and victory clearest? Friends, we see it on the cross of Christ, the true king. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians about the triumph of the true king over and against all of the false kings of this world. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, speaking to the Colossians and to us, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. In other words, you who were captive to the kingdoms of this world, you were dead. You couldn't do anything to rescue yourself. The true king God made him alive, and he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, God conquers evil on the cross fully and finally he conquers the kingdoms of this world he conquers alexander he conquers antiochus he conquers roman empires he conquers american empires he conquers hell sin death and the grave on the cross where jesus atones for our sin robs hell of its accusation And makes a public spectacle over it by triumphing over them and it in his resurrection. And when we read in Daniel chapter 8, in some difficult to understand chapter, about a king that will be brought to nothing by no human hand, that is a kind of picture of Jesus who will come by the miraculous resurrection, by the supernatural work of God and by God, not because God's people will vote the right guy into office, not because the church will grow to a certain amount, not because of anything that man can do, but simply by his glory and grace, God will triumph and has triumphed over sin, death, and the grave. Friends, that's the point of Daniel 8. Are you, are you in that king's kingdom? That's the question. Are you trusting in that king? Or are you trusting in yourself? See, our greatest problem isn't a Greek empire, isn't political harassment, isn't some sort of physical captivity. All of that in the Old Testament is meant to picture a greater captivity that we all face, which is the captivity to sin, death, and the grave. And the greater battle is not against the kingdoms of this world, but against the kingdoms of our heart, against principalities and powers that war against God. And God has defeated them on the cross by pouring out the wrath that should have been on us, on his son, who extinguished it, absorbed it, rose again in victory over it. And now, as the true king commands all people everywhere to bear allegiance to him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to say, God, what can you do for me to make my 80 years better? But God, you have defeated death, sin, and the grave, and I swear my allegiance to you. I trust in what Jesus has done on the cross, and that alone for my right standing with you. Friends, if you have not done that, 
I, I, I just tell you as straightforwardly as I can, you, that is your only hope to do that, to trust in that king. Do that e- even now as we pray. Let's pray. Lord, we are, uh, we are often very shallow people. And we, we often just come to you for a temporary little hit to get us through what we perceive to be a less than ideal existence. Father, I pray that you would use the message of Daniel 8 to... To lift our eyes to your grand and glorious plan. For reasons that we can never fully understand from this vantage point, you are working all things out for your glory. And that does not necessarily promise us ease and comfort in this life. But it does assure us of your And if we are in you, our ultimate victory in the end. Lord, would would that certainty put steel in our spine for dark days? And would it cause us as your people to keep calm and carry on and make much of Jesus? And Lord, for those that are in this room who came in not trusting in you, would you do what only you could do? Would you awaken them to the great and glorious news that you have defeated every foe and that their only hope is to trust in what your son did in his victory on the cross and his glorious resurrection. I pray that you do this for the glory of your name, for our good, for our endurance. In Jesus' name, amen.